0: Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to episode 11 of the podcast. Today we sit down with Professor Aaron Belkin. He's a political science professor at San Francisco State University, and he's the founding director of the Palm Center, which is a research institute that uses social science in order to inform public policy, specifically around topics like don't ask, don't tell, and also transgender military service. That's just a brief snapshot of all the work that he's done uh, so please check out the links in our description to learn a lot more about him and a lot more about his bio. And we're just grateful for this conversation. We're appreciative of his work. Uh, today in our conversation, we talk about the origins of the Palm Center, and then also a lot about the transgender military ban. We hope you enjoy, find it interesting, find it helpful. Uh, and so sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Welcome back everyone. Uh, And thank you so much, Professor Belkin, for joining us. We are really excited to have this conversation and we really look forward to it. So uh, yeah, we're grateful to have you on here today. Yeah, thank you. It's my pleasure. Yeah, so we always just like to get started just to have our guests kind of share a little bit about themselves and then uh, maybe how they got into the work that they're currently doing. Um, And we're more than open to whatever you wanna share, uh, however far you wanna go back, or if you wanna just really focus on today's kind of context of your work. Um, so, yeah, whatever you'd like to share.
1: Sure. Um, I have three jobs. Uh, I am a political science professor at San Francisco State, where I teach uh, American politics and also a course on how to design social justice campaigns. And I'm also the director of the Palm Center, and that's a think tank that works on LGBT military uh, inclusion, and we've been uh, we've been running for 22 years now. And then I also run a newer project, about two and a half years old, uh, called Take Back the Court, uh, whose mission is to uh, underscore expansion of the Supreme Court as a necessary step for expanding democracy.
2: Mm.
1: Great.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you sound like you have to be very busy then, constantly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm mindful that um, uh, most people who run organizations run organizations that are far bigger than mine. And you think about, uh, well, I mean, think about the president who, I guess, ultimately is in charge of millions of people when you count uh, service members as part of that. Um, so I, I, there are not that many people who report to me. Um, and but it is. uh it's, it's a little bit disorienting to have like to run separate organizations that don't talk to each other. Uh, so to have kind of like, you know, two separate strategic plans and two separate, uh, you know, accounting books and two separate HR policies. And, and that is, um, yeah, that I, I, I mean, yes, I, I think many people are busy now, but, um, I think the, the busyness is, um, is fine, but the, um, the kind of multiplicity, I would say the, what's the right way to say it. I I can't pay attention to one thing. So my foot, my focus is kind of, um, my focus is kind of, uh, split, which I guess is also a pretty common issue.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's true. And I, I think it's a great perspective to have to like, you know, there's people who are busier than you. So like, it's, it's nothing to be upset about or complain about. I mean, and I think you, you know, you're successful in all of these areas because you can just like, keep, keep the work going. Right. And that's, that's just doing the best we can do, which is great. Mm -hmm.
1: I, I feel really lucky to have, uh, to have great work to do. I've always felt that way.
2: Yeah. Yeah. What went into, um, like the start and growth of the Palm center? And maybe if you could touch on i know you did briefly already but um some of the work that specifically you guys have worked on because i think it's pretty interesting for people to hear about
1: so um so the palm center for a little more than a decade worked on uh, getting rid of don't ask don't tell and then we pivoted uh in 2013 about two years after don't ask don't tell was repealed to work on the end of the military's transgender ban which uh, went much quicker than I thought it would. Uh, I thought it would take, you know, 10 or 15 years, but then um, uh, President Obama lifted the transgender ban after only about three years of advocacy efforts. Um, and then uh, the Palm Center spent the next four years defending inclusive policy from President Trump. Uh, and now we've been working to get inclusive policy back, which which happened just a week into the Biden administration. So that was... Yeah. Uh, That was our, that was our easiest win. And our, um, I I mean, we have, you know, we pursued different strategies at different times, but the basic insight behind the Palm Center's work, um, and I I guess I'll start with Don't Ask, Don't Tell. It's that, it's that the, you you can think of, so Don't Ask, Don't Tell was, uh, from my perspective, very bad. And not only because it harmed uh, the troops and harmed the military, but also, because it was real, it was dangerous. It was it was an example of um, the politics of paranoia, and uh, it was uh, an instance in which the government was going out of its way to fire people on the basis of their identity. So firing people for who they were, um, and that's very dangerous when you think about it. Because in a constitutional system like ours, um, government can and should fire uh, punish people for what they do. I mean, if you steal a car, you should be punished. Um, but, but but punishing people on the basis of who they are is a very slippery slope to an authoritarian outcome. Um, and so there's a, a lot. It's, it's just separate from the question of the well-being of the troops. Um, there was a lot at stake um, in Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And so um, you think about Don't Ask, Don't Tell, it was kind of uh, propped up, you could think of, by two different pillars. And on the one hand was the the real reason for discrimination, which was you know, you could call it homophobia or animus or intolerance or moral disapproval, whatever, you know, dislike of gays, lesbians, and bisexual people. But the generals and admirals who insisted on the need for that policy uh, didn't want to tell the truth about why they wanted the policy put in place. And so instead, they made up a phony argument. Um, So you can call that kind of the second pillar, holding up Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which was, was kind of a a camouflage for the first pillar, but the second pillar it was couched in very neutral language of military readiness, nothing to do with judgment or homophobia. Um, and that was the idea that gays and lesbians hurt the military. So it was called the unit cohesion rationale. And the idea of the unit cohesion rationale is that uh, straight people can't trust gay people. And military units depend on trust, which they call unit cohesion. Soldiers and service members have to trust one another with their lives or else the military can't function. And so if you allow, allow someone into... this was By the way, this was 1993 and 1994 when this debate was taking place. But the argument was that if you allow someone into a unit who's, who utters the words, I am gay, uh, the straight people in that unit won't trust that person, and then unit cohesion would be compromised, and the military's ability to do its to pursue its mission would 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 fall apart. And so, I mean, we always knew scholars always knew that that set of arguments was bullshit. Uh, I mean, the military's own studies at the time showed that it was bullshit. Um, but the, it's it's quite different uh, for scholars to know something than for the public and thought leaders to know it, and and so so the Palm Center's um, model of social justice was premised on the notion that if you could knock out that that second pillar, that that idea that gays and lesbians harm the military, kind of knock that over um, in the court of public opinion, um, that would open up a space for lobbyists and litigators to push uh, repeal across the line, and 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 the, the, our sense was pretty strongly that. As long as generals and admirals with a straight face could make the argument that gays and lesbians harm the military, um, then it would never be safe for a politician to lift Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Because if a civilian politician stepped up and said, I want to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell, the generals and admirals would say, Well, you know, very sorry, uh, candidate or member of Congress or, you know, president, whoever it is. But if you do that, uh, you're going to cost American lives, and 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 no politician wants to wants to run on something that the generals and admirals are say harming the military, and so our strategy was a research based strategy, but it was not, it was not research to sit on a library shelf. Not that there's anything wrong with that, um, but the strategy was to use research. Um, as the basis of very aggressive media campaigns, and, and to do so on a repeated basis. And so the idea was that three or four times a year, and we did this for about 10 years, about 35 times, and it literally worked every time, um, we would uh, release a new study or a new data set or new policy memo, making the exact same point every single time, that it's not gays and lesbians who hurt the military, it's discrimination. Um, and then we would, uh, we would uh, generate national media headlines. And national means New York Times or Washington Post or AP or NPR or CNN, something like that. Um, so it was the same message every single time. It's not gays and lesbians who hurt the military. It's discrimination. And the idea was that by repeating the message in the media, um, it was like an advertising strategy. That I mean, if you if you only saw one commercial in your life for uh, Honda Motors, then you know when you go to buy a car, you wouldn't buy a Honda. But by ex- exposure to a steady drip of advertising, there's a chance you'll buy a Honda. Um, um, so so, so the, the trick in that strategy was um, that it's very difficult to get reporters to cover uh, scholarship because if you think about thousands of studies are released every day um, and very few um, make it into the media. And so, and and, and and by definition, we were trying to get into the media with a with a stale message. We were trying to make our own message stale. Um, but each time you succeed at that, it, it makes it that much more. It makes it that much less interesting for journalists to cover you next time around. So, so, so the so the real trick in running the Palm Center was to come up with ever more rarefied ways of getting research. Um, um, into the media, and I, I also want to say from the outset that we um, we took the research very we take the research very seriously, and we when we find evidence that's contrary to our political views, um, not only do we publish that th- those data, but we make noise about the, the the data, and I'm very proud that our political opponents have used Palm Center data to make their points. But so the point was never that all the evidence pointed in the same direction; it was just that the preponderance of evidence showed that gays don't hurt the military, um, and so. Uh, we pounded away at that idea for a decade, and um, you know there were lots of pretty interesting, I think, examples of how we got that message um, into the media. But the short bottom line is that it, it fast forward to 2009 and 2010, when President Obama, former President Obama, went to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell, some people on the other side tried to make the unit cohesion argument, but they they looked nuts because everyone knew they were lying out you know they were just they were just talking bullshit so unlike 93 94 when the generals and admirals were taken seriously when they said gays and lesbians harm the military in 2009 and 2010 uh, no one took that argument seriously and that did end up opening up a space for for lobbyists and litigators to um, to repeal the policy uh, now we have pursued separate strategies on on transgender military but um, that's the short well, that's the actually um, Mm long-winded answer to part of your question, but you also answered, you also asked how I got into the work. Mm -hmm. Um, And the answer is that uh, as an undergrad and graduate student, I studied military affairs. And then uh, in grad school came out of the closet and that was right at the time when President Clinton was losing his effort in 1993 and 1994 to get gays and lesbians in the military. And I was very um, offended by and concerned with that debate Um, and i was in graduate school and i just decided that if and when i ever had the chance to do anything about it um, i would try to do that and so when i was hired for my first academic job i set up a think tank which is now called the palm center didn't know what our our model would be at that point and didn't have any money but we kind of figured it out and then just grew a little bit every year so how did, how did
2: the process of going from, so like, you've got this think tank started and you guys had kind of have this mission of what you want to do. It seems like a really cool, interesting strategy. And it, you even mentioned that you're teaching a class on it at San Francisco state. Like, how did you come to develop that strategy? Cause obviously it's worked out very well for you.
1: Um, yeah, and I look at our our um, our founding documents from uh, 1998, and um, you know the, the first proposals we sent to funders, and they, there wasn't, they didn't perfectly align with what we ended up doing, but they partially aligned with it. You know, we we talked at the outset about using research to inform public policy with data but I personally didn't know how to get research into the media and I didn't know about this kind of iterated approach to informing public opinion. Um, and so what happened was, you know, I, 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 did, I had I was, you know, I had white privilege and I had class privilege and I had a PhD, so I had all kinds of privilege but I wasn't at a, you know, I wasn't, I was at UC Santa Barbara, which, you know, I was very grateful to be there, but it wasn't like Harvard or Yale, um, where, you know, you'd be taken more seriously by funders and journalists. Um, and I didn't, you know, I didn't like no billionaires or you who or, or foundation officers who in fact in fact the, the few foundation officers who I, I had knew a little bit from grad school at Carnegie Rockefeller and Ford um, I called and asked for help and they were like yeah fuck you uh, politely but not, <laughs> not, not not interested so so the first year of running the Palm Center was really about just cold calling a lot of people who had been part of the conversation about gays and lesbians in the military. Um, and just asking them, you know, asking them to serve on an advisory board, to legitimate what we were doing, asking them for advice, telling them what we were doing, um, and then going and finding, trying to find money. And, um, one of the first times that we were able to find money, so, so, uh, the person I talked to at the MacArthur foundation, was it MacArthur or Ford? I don't know, MacArthur or Ford. you know, he was really nice, but he's like, no, we're not going to help you. And I was like, would you just give me a little bit? And he's like, no, when we go, you know, when we support someone, we go all in. I was like, fine. And he was like, why don't you try the the, the Haas Foundation, the, the Evelyn and Walter Haas Jr. Fund in San Francisco. Um, and so I reached out to them And, uh, um, and they were like, yeah, we're, we're reevaluating our priorities for LGBT. So in fact, it probably wasn't even T at that point. It was probably gay and lesbian. Um, uh, lots of erasure of bisexuals, by the way, in this whole conversation, but that's a, that's a separate thing. Anyways, um, they said, we're reevaluating, um, what, uh, what we're doing. Um, so come back another time. And then, um. A few months later, um, a soldier named Barry Winchell was murdered with a baseball bat at Fort Campbell, Kentucky uh, for being gay. And there was a, a, a group that worked on gays and lesbians in the military in Washington that managed to make that story above the fold headlines pretty much every day for a couple weeks uh, in the New York Times. And towards the end of that media coverage, um, the former commandant of the Marine Corps uh, published an op-ed in the New York Times saying, sorry about this murder, you know, yeah, he was gay and he was beaten to death with a baseball bat and that's bad and, you know, we know we have this unfair policy, don't ask, don't tell, that's inconsistent with military values, but we're really sorry, sorry, but when push comes to shove, gays and lesbians harm the military and so there's nothing we can do about this policy. And um, I had a member of my advisory board at that point who'd served in the Clinton White House and a member of my board who'd served in the Reagan Pentagon And so um, this was also my first experience of ghostwriting, but I I wrote an op-ed in response to this Marine Corps commandant saying, you know, you're talking out of your ass, all the evidence shows that gays and lesbians don't harm the military. Super respectful, but just kind of calling him on his bullshit respectfully and, you know, based on evidence. uh, And... And I asked my two board members to sign the op-ed so that it would be bipartisan. Um, And the New York Times published the op-ed. And I had this aha moment like, oh, wow, like I see how I mean, that was just one micro realization of many more to come about scholarship in the media. But um, uh, uh, I I could see like a path for getting evidence into the media to um, inform uh, public policy. See, um, and I sent the op-ed to the guy at the Evelyn and Walter uh, uh, Evelyn and Walter Haas Jr. Fund, who had said, "Come back in a year." And he just sent me a check for seventy-five hundred dollars, um, which for us was was huge at the time. And so the first year we cobbled together sixty thousand dollars, and then we just kind of grew um, at a steady pace. We we never became huge. I mean, for a think tank. I think at our biggest, we were probably running at about a million a year, which is really nothing, um, but it was a steady line up from from six hundred thousand to to a million. Um, there, there's a, there's actually one more story from the from the founding of the Palm Center. I'd, I'd love like to hear to it. I, yeah. I, I, I forgot about this. Um, it was it was pretty funny, but there's a just a huge famous hero of the movement named Greta Hannelmeyer. And she'd been fired from the military before Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and had testified in Congress to try to prevent Congress from putting Don't Ask, Don't Tell in place. Barbara Streisand fell in love with her story and made a movie out of her where Glenn Close played Greta. She'd spoken; Greta had spoken at a march in Washington in front of hundreds of thousands of people, just a huge, famous person in the military. So... You know, I wanted her on my advisory board because, you know, when you set up an institute and you have no fame or credibility, you want a board of well-known people so that when you go to funders and they're like, well, can I trust you? You say, oh, yeah, look at my board. We have famous people on the board. So I found her number and just cold called her and was like, and she cut me off and she's like, tell me what you want or I won't respect you. Um, and, and I was like, um, okay, I started this think tank on gays and lesbians in the military, and I want you to hold a fundraiser and be on my board. And she said, fine. It's <laughs> like, okay. So, so she lived on Whidbey Island uh, off the coast of Seattle. So we spent a couple months setting up this fundraiser, and she had a lot of mostly lesbian friends who just, like, worshipped her. And when she would say, come to a fundraiser, they would come. And so she probably had 50 or 75 lesbians come to her beautiful house um, on Whidbey Island. And I uh, flew up to Seattle and rented a car and took the ferry out to Whidbey Island and drove to her house and you know just wanted to be sure I wasn't late, so I got there like two hours early. And she, she's, Greta is, uh, has Norwegian heritage, and so she was making a, a, a smorgasbord or buffet of, of Norwegian finger food and she asked me to stir the potato salad and I was wearing khakis and it there was like super oily like salad. And so like I like stir the salad and this like big splotch of olive oil came like oh, no. over my crotch. <laughs> so it looked like I had like, you know, peed in my pants. And you know, I was just, I was so green at this. I, I mean, with hindsight, it, I should have just said, hey Greta, like, you know, Do you have an apron or something? And she would have laughed and said, I mean, she would have told her friends and, you know, they would have given more money even, you know, it would have been fine. Like you're allowed to be vulnerable, you're allowed to make mistakes. But I was so terrified that I got a, uh, I think it was like the Palm Center's first annual report. And I just like hold it, held it over my carrying it around all night. <laughs> crush. Well, for for two and a half hours. So with my left hand, I held the cr- the book, the reporting. With my right hand, was like greeting all these lesbians, and you know, did the whole pitch for money. And they're writing checks, and I'm just taking them with my right hand. And you know, I think after like three or four hours, finally, like everyone left, and it was just like me and Greta and her wife. And she's and she's like, why are you holding that book? there and I was like oh I don't know it's just like just makes me comfortable and she's like okay and so then like the event was done and I went back to the rental car and it was just like ah, oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> that's so funny so oh, I, man, told, it is. I told her that story uh 15 years after the fact and she oh wow that uh, is so <laughs> impressive that you're able to cover that up the entire time yeah, totally <laughs> know, it. and for all I know I wasn't doing it at all and they were they saw exactly what was going on but
0: uh, (laughs) yeah wow that yeah that's amazing and I um yeah I'm I know that we spoke about this once before but just knowing about the influence that the media has in this whole process is um kind of scary I think and uh I guess like what was that like to go up against something like that and like what kind of perseverance or like grit did you need to, to get all this research out there
1: to go up against the media?
0: Yeah. Or almost to like be with the media so that you can get these, this information that you want um, publicized.
1: Yeah. We ended up using a lot of different kind of strategies and tricks to get research in the media. I mean, the, the, the I guess the, the kind of learn, you know, actually it was interesting. Um, Mark Bingham died on September 11th. He stormed that he was a big, I think six foot two or six foot three foot gay rugby player. And he was on my gay football team at the time. He was a PR consultant, just, obviously before he, before nine 11 when he died. And, um, and I was, I was telling him like, I've sent up the center and we got to raise money to, um, you know, get advertising about our research. And he's like, don't, don't get advertising, just generate media about your about your research. And I was like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. And he's like, yeah, it's free. Well, it's not free. It's, it's actually unbelievably expensive. But that's when I had my first aha moment about, um, about um, the media. That might have even been before the New York Times op ed. Actually, I can, t- who knows? It was about the same time. Um, so, a couple things about the media. One is just to realize if you publish a st- with very, very, very rare exceptions, if you publish a study and it's not covered in the media, it it almost like ontologically doesn't exist as far as Washington goes. And so, if you want to give your allies a chance to use your research to bolster their argument, you have to get media coverage of it, and you have to get media coverage of it in certain places, like a you know a story. I mean, even in the LA Times, probably won't do in terms of uh, getting you know being useful to um, uh, members of Congress. Um, and, uh, and and also, you know, just getting into the New York Times does not mean that the study will have an impact on public policy. But it, it's all about kind of maximizing the likelihood. So, 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 so the game is to try to get the research into very high prestige outlets. And this was before social media, so it's a, it's a different story now. Um, so that's the first realization. The second realization is um, that it's hard to get into the media, not just because research is not seen as newsworthy, but also because you have to realize that, um, you know, especially now with CNN and 24 hour news, like people think that, Oh, there's just all this outlet space for news, but actually the ratio of people and groups and corporations and nonprofits and politicians and, you know, just, all kinds of entities that want to get in the news the ratio of folks who want to get in the news to the available column inches or broadcast minutes every day is huge and every day there is a you know almost like a game that's played between thousands and thousands of and people and corporations and nonprofits that have spent a lot of money on very smart PR firms to get their stories into the news and only a handful of those folks win every day. So so you know if you if, if you are piloting a plane and you crash the plane like that will get into the news but for pretty much everything else unless you're the president of the United States if there's a headline in the New York Times about you, it's because you figured out a way to make that happen. It, like reporters in general don't find you. you. So so there's there's almost always a story behind why there's a story. Um, okay, so that's the second thing to know. And then the third the third kind of um, like thing. Then this was really the, the the learning curve was was how to make research newsworthy, and it was about so so it was. Uh, so just within this kind of third part of the response to your question, there were kind of two kind of poles that had to be kind of you had to steer between them. Because on the one hand, you know, if you want to get a coverage of a study that says that the Earth is is flat, like you're not going to get coverage of that study um, because that's too uh, outside the mainstream and wacky. At the same time, if you want to get uh, coverage of a study that said the Earth is a sphere that's not gonna get coverage because your message is already known. And so you, you, you're you aiming to, um, and, and, and the, the point was not to get the coverage for its own sake, it was to get the coverage of a message, the message that gays don't harm the military, discrimination does. But you, so you had to make that, so that, that message had to be known enough to get coverage, But not your your kind of frame on that couldn't be so crazy as to um, as to uh, you know turn off a reporter or just seem weird, Um, and so so there were different tactics for maximizing the likelihood of getting something into the news. So one thing that was helpful was to um, try to get a human interest story paired with data. Um, For whatever reason, um, the American public likes stories and doesn't like data. And so, for example, we did a study showing um, gays and lesbians in the British military was a success and pitched that to the London reporter for the New York Times and she rejected it. But then we found a uh, a gay submariner in the Royal Navy who'd been fired for being gay, but then allowed back in. Uh, we went back to the the London New York Times reporter and said, hey, we have this research, a really good study showing that gays have not harmed the British military. And and, 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 and here's a gay British submariner to tell you that story. And so that became a front page New York Times article. So so one, and, and then there's a whole kind of art and science to kind of finding stories. So but that was one thing. A second would be. Um, uh, who's authored your study. And so if you could get a general or an admiral to serve as the author of uh, a study that made it more newsworthy. And the most, um, uh, I guess, kind of uh, one of the epitomes uh, of, of that uh, um, uh, strategy was we, we did a study show, so the, the GAO did a study showing that the cost of firing gays and lesbians is something like $200 million. Um, and we redid their study because I used flawed methodology, and we showed that they were—I forgot—off by 100%. It was like $400 million to fire gays and lesbians over 10 years. Um, um, but uh, the, one of the co-authors of our study was William Perry, former Secretary of Defense. So that was the top, top military official in the United States saying. So, so what's the message? It's the exact same message. Uh, so, in the in the in the British military example, it was. Gays and lesbians don't hurt the British military, but discrimination did hurt the British military. In the financial study, it's the military is wasting money firing badly needed talent. Another example of how discrimination hurts the military. So, so, uh, so in this case, though, um, it was co-authored by such a distinguished uh, official that that made it newsworthy. So the study got on Good Morning America. A third trick was, as you could see, that the gap between the British study and the financial study was to to make the same argument, but from a slightly different perspective. So maybe you you do a poll of service members, maybe you study a police department, Um, maybe you do a more ethnographic approach where you go into an American military unit and see if gays and lesbians are hurting the unit. Um, So so, so the third kind of trick was to kind of ask the same question um, from a different angle. and um, you know, lots, lots more learning uh, along the way. But, 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 um, you know, we, we, um, we always. So I said that our strategy worked about, pretty much always worked. So about three or four times a year, thirty-five times over ten years, we managed to make national headlines um, uh, about our research or about our data. But you always had to have a plan B, plan C, plan D, plan E, plan F, because if the New York Times reporter said no, then you had to figure out another way to um, to get coverage. And I'll, I can give an example of what like a plan B looked like. Um, by the end of this 10 years, it was getting harder and harder and harder and more and more and more expensive to break stories. So one of the last stories we broke about gays and lesbians in the military took two years And $100,000 of staff time to break a story on CNN um, of 104 generals and admirals uh, who were saying that don't ask, don't tell hurts the military. So 104. That's a lot of generals and admirals. Um, Now we're more used to numbers like that because big groups of generals and admirals have started signing stuff. But back in that time, uh, this was one of the first, it might have been the first time such a large group of generals and admirals had said anything, and certainly such a large group had said anything on behalf of gays and lesbians. And that's kind of surprising validators, which, by the way, is another trick for getting media coverage to get your Mary, your, your message covered by people who might not be assumed to agree with you, like getting a sugar company executive to call for, you know, the end of, uh, uh, of soda to help with diabetes yeah. or something like that. Um, so anyways, so 104... Um, 104 uh, generals and emeralds and we took that to the AP reporter in the Pentagon uh, and they said no um, and that's really bad AP is just very powerful especially in, in days of shrinking news budgets because if you get a story into national AP there's a good chance that two, three, four, five hundred 500 other newspapers, television and radio stations around the world will pick it up so it's just a giant amplifier but they said no the Pentagon Bureau well AP also has regional offices, but in order to get regional coverage of something, you have to appeal to that region. And so it turned out that the senior officer among these generals and admirals was a four-star admiral, who had been, I think, superintendent of the of the of the naval of the um, uh, U.S. Naval Academy at uh, 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 Annapolis, um, and uh, which which so that was uh, Maryland's kind of Baltimore's uh, uh, region. And so he agreed to be the spokesperson for these 104 generals and admirals. So then we went to the, the Baltimore reporter of the Baltimore AP and said, hey, would you be interested in the story? And that person said yes, and they took the story, and then it went viral and got onto CNN. Um, so, so what did it take to, um, to, to get coverage in the media? It took a lot of money. We 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 are, a research, we are a research institute, but we've spent more on communications than on research because it's that important to get media coverage. Um, so it took a lot of money, a lot of privilege, a lot of uh, contingency plans, um, uh, a lot of relationships with reporters, um, a lot of luck, um, and um, yeah.
2: Wow, yeah, it's I mean, it's so fascinating to hear how you've like been able to utilize this philosophy of like doing this great research, obviously, like you just said, means nothing unless you can like distribute the research for an impact. And it's been so, it's so interesting to hear how you've like utilized the system that's in place to like really leverage that to like push these like big positive initiatives.
1: Well, well, sorry, I, I know you're, I want to interrupt you. I know you're, you're, you're getting to a question, but this is important. I don't want to forget it. Please. You know, scholars are often interested in kind of, um, Philosophy of science, ontology, um, uh, objectivity, truth, subjectivity, social constructions—you y- y- know, kind of what what is objective—and and 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 our kind of our point at the Palm Center um, is that there—and this is, I think, a, a somewhat interesting tension or contradiction, uh, or maybe a paradox. I don't know, but. Um, that there is kind of a truth about gays and lesbians and bisexuals and later trans people, which is that on average, they don't hurt the military, but that truth doesn't count as a truth for the sake of Washington policy conversations, unless you socially construct that truth in the media. So it was almost like you had to take a socially, a social constructivist perspective to positivism, uh, and, and truth. Um, and, uh, and, um, you know, you know, in an era when facts matter less and less, um, I think that strategy of just kind of like ramming the truth through the media um, and through the public opinion, uh, through the national policy conversation is a very important strategy that hopefully more progressive groups, more and more progressive, you know, a lot of groups, every, every group that has money has a, has a communications team, but the, but, the, but the job of that team is usually to get the organize, organization's name in the media. That's important for raising money. It's always, you know. You enhance your power by getting your name in the media, but I think it's much more important to, to get your message in the media. So to, so to integrate media communications into your social justice strategy, um, even if you get no credit. I mean, a lot of times the Palm Center got no credit whatsoever for our work because some general or admiral would 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 sign the would sign the study, uh, help co-author, and then sign the study. Um, and we would just keep our fingerprints off it. Not that we were lying or ashamed of it, but it's just that um, it was better for the message if someone else was credited for it. So, um, yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, and I think that's a great point. And I think it leads really nicely into my question was you, you touched on a few times that the one of the goals of doing this was, and to get the end change that you were hoping to see was you had to change public perception. And I'm yeah. curious, when you were getting through these phases and you're starting... Do you know that it's worked when the policy changes or is there a point before where you're like, we're we're there, we made it and like, this is going to happen?
1: Well, it's interesting, you know, foundations in the last decade or so, in my experience have really more and more emphasized, I might even say fetishized metrics to assess how organizations are doing as they, as they march towards those goals. And I think there are parallel truths about those metrics, which is on the one hand, yeah, it's important to try as best you can to assess how you're doing. And on the other hand, the metrics are kind of bullshit. And you could say that, you know, maybe if the Palm Center had never existed, um, uh, then don't ask, don't tell would have been repealed at exactly the same time in exactly the same way. There's just no way to know that. Um, What I can say is that we had metrics, um, uh, like, for example, um, polling continued to change um, over the course of our work. And the public expressed greater and greater support for gays and lesbians in the military. And service members expressed greater and greater support for gays and lesbians in the military. And generals and admirals did. Now, that was probably overdetermined. and was partially a, a reflection of of, uh, of the, for better or worse, the the kind of mainstreaming, the politics of respectability of gays and lesbians getting more prominence in the culture in general. But it was also, I would argue, possibly an effect of our work, in part because when folks would um, try to make the opposing case, um, once we were up and running, we would just, I mean, always politely, um, ream them a new asshole. And so it got yeah. to the, because they were just, because well, they were spouting lies based on bullshit. Right. And so, in fact, I remember very well in like 2002, I think, there was a conference at NYU on gays and lesbians in the military. And the organizer of the conference reached out to something like 41 or 42 opponents of gays and lesbians in the military to offer to like pay their way to come to nyu and not one of them would come to nyu you know academics will talk about anything if a free trip to new york like sign me up you want me to talk about paleontology i don't know shit about it like where's my ticket but no one would agree to come to the conference from the other side because they knew they were going to get reamed a new asshole um so um, you know, so that's another and also the media you could tell in the tenor of coverage like that the journalists more and more and more just thought that the other side was just completely full of shit. Um, so that was, you know, and we did a study at one point where we um, we surveyed the editorial boards of small town red state newspapers. So places where George Bush, the second just killed John Kerry and. Um, and, 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 and very very few of those editorial boards were willing to go on record in support of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Um, so, so, so all those were, were metrics that you could kind of measure. Um, but I would say there were also energetic... Uh, metrics, which, you know, it's just like how things feel, which, you know, it's a very, there's a lot of potential. Well, there's a lot of potential for bias in metrics you can measure, but there's certainly maybe even more uh, potential for metrics, uh, for bias in metrics that are just kind of your gut instincts. But, you know, for what it's worth, um, I would argue that the day we broke the story that gays and lesbians in the military... Uh, I'm sorry, the day we broke the story that um, the military was firing Arabic linguists for being gay was the day that the other side lost the public. I'll come back to that in a second. And then I would argue the day when we published an an op-ed in the New York Times by the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff saying he was wrong about gays and lesbians in the military and that, that discrimination hurts the military, not gays and lesbians, that's the day when the other side lost the military. And then I would argue um, the day when we showed that President Obama um, could sign an executive order um, suspending don't ask, don't tell—that um, was the day when the other side lost Congress. And so, at a very energetic—and and I, I can either say more or not about what those three inflection points—but but 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 those those certainly felt like big, big turning points. I mean. I guess I'm going to say more about at least one of the, the, do, yeah. one of the yeah. inflection points even without your, your prompting. But, you, you know, um, it, it took two years to get General Shalikashvili to, to, to sign that op-ed, to write and sign that op-ed, um, saying that he was wrong about gays and lesbians in the military um, and to get that into the New York Times. Uh, it took a lot of... A lot. We had four meetings with him, all kinds of different strategies of working with him. Um, but, um, you know, just a few years before... Ninety-seven percent of generals and admirals were opposed to gays and lesbians in the military. So you you know there were just no officers, even lieutenants, who were willing to go on record in favor of gays and lesbians in the military. Like not at all um, at the in the beginning, Um, and you know that changed a tiny bit over time. There was a very brave straight. Uh, Colonel, who was a professor at West Point, who published a, a, an op-ed favoring gays and lesbians in the military along the way. So there were there were some exceptions, but 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 almost nothing. But but after you, you know, and we were working the military the whole time. I mean, I was making annual visits to West Point and uh, the Air Force Academy and the War Colleges um, to talk about gays and lesbians in the military, and you, you know, cultivate allies who could make the case internally. But in terms of public, you know, public statements, once the former chairman of the joint chiefs of staff. I mean, the boss of the whole military. Once he said that gays and lesbians do not hurt the military, but discrimination did. It didn't mean that everyone in the military switched on a dime, but that meant that it was safe for our allies in the military to make their case with their peers. And also more and more in public, we we would never have been able to get those 104 generals and admirals to sign a statement. if had, if it hadn't been for the Shalakashvili op-ed, um, uh, January 2nd, 2007. Um, so, um, yeah. So, so I, you know, if I could choose between, so in, in, in response to your, how do you know you're having an impact question? Uh, it, first, I would concede maybe we had no impact, but then wearing my hat that says that we did make an impact, if I had to choose between the measurable metrics and the, the, the gut feeling and metrics, I would, I would go with the gut feeling metrics. And I, if I was, if I was trying to, pr- uh, pr- you know, pitch a donor on giving money to the Palm center, fuck the objective metrics. I would, I would tell the story of the, of the, of the, 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 the felt, um, metrics.
2: Yeah. I love that. And like, you're, you're right. Cause I mean, even just in society in general, you can really, you, You can really feel like the pulse of society change as things are going on and i I love the the gut instinct too i think it it tells us way more than we realize um you know until we really stop and ask ourselves a question of like huh i think you know i think something's happening here and i I think this is why so yeah
1: I, i mean i'll just say you know in the end game a few people made that argument about gays and lesbians harming the military and by the way, making our argument and winning in the court of public opinion was not sufficient for the repeal. You, know, you still had to have lobbyists and litigators and right. grassroots activists. Um, so you know, the, and they were hugely important. So this was just kind of one piece of the advocacy puzzle. But, but when people made that argument in the endgame, I mean, it was bad. It was fucking bad. Like Elaine Donnelly, who's a, she's, she, she runs a, a, an anti-LGBT military think tank. And she, she went to Congress and made that argument, and, and John Stewart did a, did a segment on her on The Daily Show. Um, I mean, if I were her, I would have never shown my face in public after that segment, because he, he just eviscerated her, I mean, not violently, but emotionally violently and politically violently bad like so you, you you know if you'd have to be a fucking fool to like believe what she said um after you saw what john stewart did to her and you know and during during the congressional hearings at the end the other side was able to find one guy a, a retired what the hell was his name i can't remember but a retired marine corps general and he he tried to trot out the unit cohesion argument and There there was so little evidence. You know, he's just like grasping at straws. And so so, so the point he made in Senate testimony was he said, uh, you know, gays and lesbians hurt the military. By the way, you know, the Srebrenica massacre, which at the time was the worst massacre in Europe, uh, you know, since World War II, the reason all those civilians were killed at Srebrenica was that the Dutch military, which was supposed to be guarding the civilians, had gays and lesbians in their forces. And... Senator Levin from Michigan, who was the chairman of Senate Armed Services at the time, was presiding over the hearing. He he like he he, he went like this with his glasses, and he looked over his glasses. He's like, um, "Did you just say what I think? You, like, would you like to like rephrase that?" And um, uh, the the the. General, I think it was, was like, no, no, no. And Levin was like, you know, all right, well, let's take a break. And I mean, immediately uh, the Dutch prime minister, who I think was a right winger at the time, and the Dutch minister of defense released statements you know, that, that said like, this dude is like fucking off his rocker and has lost his marbles. Is he fucking kidding? Like, yeah, we failed and we feel terrible about it. We allowed this massacre to happen, but it's not because we had gays in our ranks. Are you fucking insane? So, um, so, so, you know, I, I, I think we sucked the oxygen out of that argument over the course of 10 years.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's definitely been like a, a ton of progress. Um, but thinking about like there was progress with the Obama administration and then we see a step back with the Trump administration. And now there's this, this great victory uh, at the start of the Biden administration. I mean, I guess like how do you feel like this experience has been and like what kind of work still needs to be done or do you continue to do to ensure that these policies are in place?
1: Uh, I was so focused on the second part of your question, I've already forgotten the first part of your question. I think was it kind on? of all tied into one. So if you just answer
0: the second part, I think that'd be good.
1: Well, what what the part that I that 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 I'm tracking was what work remains to be done. But you asked something like, "What was it like to get the second victory under Biden?" or "What did it take to get the?" I, I can I just can't remember. Um. Yeah. <laughs> it was just just, just ask whatever you want to ask. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: I guess I'm just like reflecting back on um, like my knowledge of kind of what's gone on in the past 15 years um, in terms of policy and thinking about how we had steps forward and then we had steps back recently and then recently another step forward. Like, how do you continue to ensure that these policies um, stay in place? And then also like what other work, I guess, do you think needs to be done?
1: Okay, so on the policies staying in place, um, Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal has proved to be resilient, um, and Trump did not go after gays, lesbians, and bisexuals in the military. I think he would have if he could have, um, but you just could not, with a straight face, make the argument that gays and lesbians were hurting the military. And Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal had um, five years to bake in under Obama, and... Uh, And and one thing we did a year after the, after the, um, uh, after repeal was we released a study based on a year of research showing that there had been no problems in the first year of repeal. Um, And we got a New York Times editorial written about that study. And it just, you know, it's, and I, I, I mean, I think the debate was going to be framed as a success for inclusive policy, whatever. But we were just trying—you know—we were anticipating that someday someone would probably want to try to repeal Don't Tell, and we just wanted to kind of get on record in the New York Times with evidence showing that that inclusion was successful. Um, um, So that that has proved resilient. You know, in some if 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 democracy dies and we end up with uh, an authoritarian. Government. Um, I mean, there are authoritarian and even fascist gays, so you know you could get a pro-gay authoritarian government. But uh, in, the, in the U.S. context, an authoritarian government would probably go hand in hand with um, evangelical Christians, which who are very anti-LGBT, and so you could see um, you could see uh, a kind of an effort to reinstate uh, "Don't Ask, Don't Tell." Um but 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 the the answer on Don't Us Don't Tell was it, the resilience of that policy is a function of it had time to bake in, we've been able to control the narrative. Um and uh, you know, the, the the religious right has been chipping away at LGBT rights, including gays and lesbians in the military, through religious exemptions, you know. Uh this military chaplain shouldn't have to perform a marriage on gay soldiers if they don't agree with um, if uh, with homosexuality and you know that chaplain never would have been forced to marry a couple they didn't want to marry but uh, but more and more and more the courts are allowing uh, uh, Americans including service members to get a free pass on ignoring uh, uh, civil rights protections for gays and lesbians so you could see that uh, work being expanded in the military But but for what it's worth, that policy has been resilient so far. On trans, the problem with Obama's um, repeal of the trans ban is that it took place in the very end of the Obama administration on June 30th, 2016, with just, um, uh, what was that, August, four or five months before the election. Um, I thought that that was going to be... Irreversible because our argument at the time was that, you know, once you let toothpaste out of the tube, it's um, you can't put it back in. And once trans people start coming out and getting medically necessary care and serving openly and successfully, you're not going to be able to reverse that. But Trump in his shamelessness did. Um, And, and, you know, Biden just swept into office and undid what Trump undid uh, in a week Um, And now that policy will have four years to bake in at least and maybe eight if if a Democrat wins the next election, maybe 12 if the Democrats win the next two. Um, But, uh, you know, on the one hand, the the other side is, you know, they don't they don't quite organize around LGBT issues like they used to. I mean, they're vicious and they're still anti LGBT and they will still, you know, do what they can to fuck us. Um, but it's not quite the same heat that it was in... Ni- in 93, 94, the fight against gays and lesbians in the military was the, I think at the time, the greatest fundraising bonanza ever for, for uh, traditional values churches. Um, and, 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 you know, when Trump won, there was a statement signed by, I think, 60 or 70 far-right cultural warriors like the head of the Family Research Council saying, you know, Trump needs to get trans people out of the military. But it didn't become this, like this like right wing grassroots, like passion project. Um, So, you know, some people are saying that to protect the policies long-term, you need to get them out of the realm of regulation and into statute. So pass a statute protecting gays, lesbians and trans people in the military. I I can see the argument for doing that. I think there are also counter arguments for that. I'm I'm not sure it's gonna happen, but, at least for now, the the policies are safe for four years and safe-ish moving forward. Yeah, I'm I'm just so
0: appreciative and of the work that you've done and that the people that you've worked with have done um, because I think that there's just such a, a power to getting that that truth out there and like once it's out there, it's it's there um, and people can still argue against it and not agree with it, but it's it's present um and i I think that there's just a power to that alone um so yeah
1: yeah i mean to to reinstate the transgender ban trump and trump's pentagon had to lie and they had to lie officially and they had to lie in a pentagon report because you can't just put in place a government policy without justifying it so former secretary mattis Signed, I think a forty-four page report where he just lied about trans people in the military, and you know, and we took that study down, and um, you know, immediately uh, worked with the American Medical Association, and American Psychiatric, and American Psychological to associations to issue statements of condemnation about the lies they told about the science. Um, We got six former uh, US surgeons general to issue a statement saying that they weren't telling the truth about the evidence. We did a line by line refutation of the entire um, Mattis report and got a New York Times editorial about that. Um, But they still lied and they got away with reinstituting the policy. You know, if. If Kavanaugh hadn't replaced Kennedy on the Supreme Court, I'm not sure they would have gotten away with it because judges were not buying their lies at the lower, in the lower courts. But um, once Kavanaugh was seated, so so we actually held out on Trump for two and a half years and we were really proud. A small group of us, of trans, of LGBT ad, advocates, um, defended inclusive policy from Trump for two and a half years. And, and it, for a while, I think it was maybe the only area a federal law and policy that was actually better under Trump than under Obama. And the reason was because we had together forced the courts to, not forced the courts, but we had encouraged the courts to force the military to um, put I- implement one last piece of inclusive policy that, that Obama, Obama hadn't had time to implement. But then when Kavanaugh was seated on the Supreme Court, uh, the administration leapfrogged the whole litigation process and went to the Supreme Court and said, we're having a policy emergency. Trans people are posing a great risk to military readiness and Kavanaugh bought it and so allowed the allowed Trump to put the ban uh, in place.
2: Great. Yeah. So I, I want to just follow up on the second part of Nick's question, um, and I'd love to hear more about some of the efforts of the Palm Center now that um, with everything that happened early in Biden's administration, like we talked about, where's the focus today on on the work that's being done?
1: Well, we spent last year preparing for the possibility of a democratic president. I think even if the Palm Center hadn't been in existence over the past year, a democratic president would have come in and repealed the transgender ban pretty quickly, but we pursued four or five strategies to try to, you can think of them as insurance policies to maximize the likelihood that that if a Democrat was elected president, that they would quickly restore inclusive policy. Um, so we can, you know, talk about what that looked like or not. Um, and then moving forward, um, yeah, uh, so the VA still does not offer surgery, gender affirming surgery to transgender veterans. There are about 134,000 transgender veterans in the U S 10,000 veterans in the VA system have, uh, gender dysphoria diagnoses and they can't get surgery. Um, there are folks who've been. We're not leading that, but we we provide support. And when folk like you know when folks fighting that fight uh, needed an estimate of the cost of how much surgery would cost, they came to us and we provided that. And the VA was about to offer surgery when they thought Hillary Clinton was going to be elected, and then as soon as Trump won the election, they were like, uh, no because Trump would reverse the decision. So so, so one thing we'll do is, is, again, support efforts that others are undertaking to get surgery offered to the VA. Um, we need to c- cancel or withdraw or supersede that Mattis report that I mentioned um, a few minutes ago, the report that lied about transgender troops. And the problem is that that report falsely said on the basis of no evidence and on the basis of grossly distorted readings of, uh, of um, a few studies um, that uh, health care for trans people is not reliable, safe, and effective, uh, contrary to the global medical consensus that it is. And so the fact that there's a government document issued by the Secretary of Defense that says that is having negative impacts in other settings like uh, in uh, other other agencies are using that at different levels of of government have have used that uh, report to justify not offering care to trans people. And it's even been cited by a judge. So we want there's really no process that we're aware of for canceling a, a, a Defense Department report. But we want we want a memo issued to you know, that the report is withdrawn or superseded or something like that. To the extent that there are any implementation issues with inclusive policy, Uh, uh, President Obama's—we argue that President Obama's uh, policy for transgender troops was gold standard. We think the Pentagon did an outstanding job of formulating inclusive policy for trans troops, mainly because they they followed the the gold standard principle of uh, of good order and discipline, which is treat everyone the same. So, so. Obama's policy simply treated trans people like everybody else, and that's all that needed to happen. And I think Biden's policy will do that too. That said, no policy is implemented perfectly, so we'll just kind of monitor that situation. Um, There is an issue, uh, um, so TRICARE is a military health insurance program that includes coverage of um, family members, dependents, and spouses of service members and TRICARE is prevented by statute from offering gender-affirming surgery to um, the family members of uh, troops. Um, Because that statute, uh, it's probably going to be impossible to change that unless the um, Senate gets rid of the filibuster. Um, But if the filibuster goes, then we'll have a conversation about that. Um, And then there's a much, much longer-term conversation to be had about the question of service by um, people with um, intersex DSD conditions, and then service by um, non-binary or genderqueer troops. So we, we, you know, we always talked about the lifting of the transgender ban as the transgender ban, but it really was not a transgender ban. Actually, it was a ban on all transgender people. But the inclusive policy that Obama put in place was not inclusive and that Biden will put in place is putting in place is not inclusive policy for transgender troops. It's a it's inclusive policy for transsexual troops. And what that th- there's there's not really a ban on non-binary troops, but but in a way there is, because if you're a member of the military, you have to be managed as a man or a woman, which means if you're non-binary, you can't be honest about who you are. Um and so and so there's a you know a longer term question about changing that policy. But that. That's what's on our plates.
2: It's a lot of a lot of stuff to still go. I, so I, uh, you know, obviously wish you you and the Palm Center the best of luck. Still doing all of that, cause, and you know, if there's any way that we can help with this broadcast and distribution of this to help get the word out even more, I'm happy to be able to help provide what little help we can. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, it's very kind. Thank you.
2: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And then we also just like to ask, like, if you were to give um, like a piece of advice, maybe to someone who's um, interested in potentially getting into politics or really like working into uh influencing social policy um like what kind of advice would you give
1: uh my dog is growling because he's scared Mm -hmm. were you scared by that question (laughs) (laughs) that's
2: a big question
1: (laughs) um well what kind of person am i giving advice to like a an advocate or a scholar or someone working in congress or.
2: I'm going to go broad and you can answer as broadly as you'd like in response to that. But I would just say like, let's say a college freshman who's like taking a political science class and knows they see a future for themselves in like the political landscape, but don't really know where they fit or, but they just want some good advice on how to navigate the system and Uh want to, and they want to do it ethically and they want to make good decisions for, for other people.
1: Like, I don't know, is there any piece of advice or a few pieces of advice that you would give? You know, I'm really mindful that I've had just a shitload of um, class privilege and race privilege that allowed me to do my advocacy. So, you, you know, with with most advocates and advocacy organizations, if the organization fails, uh, then people who work for the organization can't put food on their table. And that was never the case with me because um, I always had my professor's salary to fall back on. So I had a uniquely safe uh, path that I feel very, very, very grateful for. And so, so one, you know, one just kind of very technical piece of advice is, and, and, and my artist friends do this. Um, so it's definitely doable, or at least it was before the last few rounds of gentrification, um, uh, is to, um, be mindful of that dynamic. And so, you know, my friends, live in you know micro studios that they haven't moved from in 25 years to keep their housing costs low and so that they don't go into debt because once you start and i think a lot of college students are not really mindful of the the crushing weight that debt can have on your um, career choices after you're done with with college and so just to just to be mindful about um, the uh, the um, importance of having an inexpensive lifestyle unless you have great wealth at your disposal so that if your advocacy fails um you you will not uh, you know you'll minimize your 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 suffering um so that's one thing um uh you know this this next piece of i don't know if it's advice but just like something i think about sometimes um is that I, you, you know it's Of course it's absolutely imperative for especially now for people coming out of college to find a way to um, uh, make a living and so so there's a certain amount of instrumentalism that goes into career choices for almost everybody at the same time um if there's a chance to work on something that really comes from your heart uh that's very sustaining and i would argue that um that having a sense of purpose and mission tied to social justice might feel better than, um, than if your sense of purpose and mission is tied to uh, acquiring wealth. Um, again, you of course have to have a minimal degree of, of earnings to have housing and food, um, but in general, actually there's a literature on this that, that once you surpass kind of basic needs, that getting more money really doesn't make people happier. But, um, but doing work that you care about um, does. Um, so that's a, that's a second thing. Um, a third thing I would talk about would be the power of information interviewing. Um, uh, um, you know, I, I watched like a lot of LGBT kids, you know, the first organization they'd hear about would be HRC just because HRC had such a huge advertising budget and... You know, would be, you know, HRC had product placement of like Ellen and Will and Grace, and and so, uh, you know, they come out of the closet at age 19 or whenever it was, and go volunteer for HRC, and then realize like, oh, HRC's, I mean, no, not not taking anything away from HRC, but it's 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 a bit corporate and it's it's a little bit more LGBT than Q, so it's not it's it's not it's not it's really not. Uh, as queer as 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 it is gay, lesbian, um, bi, and, and and trans, and um, and and you know, it's they they have tried to you know work on on diversity, but it's there's a lot of white privilege and whites that's implicated in in the social justice models of a lot of organizations, including the public centers. So I I want to own that, um, but it's really useful to. Um, when you're thinking about um, a path uh, to volunteer or to work, to really interview as many people as you can about what different organizations are doing. Because there might be some more radical organizations that don't um, get media coverage as much, but might more align with your politics and you want to find out about those. And, And the only way you can really do that unless you are a brilliant, Uh, Well, you can do individual research, but talking to people really, really helps. And just asking like, who's doing cutting edge research and why? um, Or who's doing cutting edge work and why? Uh, I think a fourth, I can't remember what number we're on. I think it's a fourth um, would be to really try to get some mentorship into how to ask for help. Um, I noticed that Many students are too shy to ask for help because they don't feel entitled to it. And many students are overly aggressive about uh, asking for help uh, because they feel too entitled to it. Um, And so the former scenario looks like silence. The latter scenario looks like, you know, a student who just comes in my office without knocking on the door first. there's a literature that shows that people actually liked to be asked for favors um, because then, you know, you enter into their kind of uh, ecology and economy and maybe someday they'll get to ask you for a favor back. Um, but this information interview strategy is an example of um, you'll get better information if you learn how to ask for the information interviews effectively. And and that is, is a balance of, um, uh, pestering people without pestering them too much and the, and the reason for that is you know for each 100 people let, that's a too big number for each 10 people you you know let's say you find 10 people randomly on the internet who seem like they're you know well-known advocates in the wor- work you want to do and you want to information interview them you might you might reach out to them cold and and maybe only one of them will respond to you and so The question is how to ask in a way that maximizes the likelihood of response. And one, you know, is to be very mindful of their time, which means a super short email. Um, And the other is to kind of, if they don't answer you, you know, wait a week or two and maybe email them again, then maybe wait two or three weeks and email them again. Maybe after doing that five or six times, you leave a voice message. Um, but so you're not calling every day and asking them, uh, for help to help you, but, but you're also not letting them get away with ignoring you, um, and striking that balance. And that's just kind of one example of how to ask for help. But, but I mean, basically all I do every day, all day as director of institutes is to ask people for help, whether it's donors or advocates or scholars or journalists. And so, so asking for help is really a skill to asking for help in a professional way is a skill that, um, to, to work on, I guess, a sixth thing, um, is to be mindful that, um, I don't think there's any such thing as clean advocacy. Um, one of my, uh, former colleagues and, uh, uh, now friend, um, refers to tempered radicalism and, um, you know, even in the, in the don't ask, don't tell work and the, in the trans military work, which, you know we in my mind we were really fighting for important stakes about what it means to be a citizen you know not just the well-being of troops and so to my mind those were very important fights and very important wins that helped a lot of people um and but they also hurt a lot of people um and i think that that's probably true of every advocacy campaign in the in the in the example of the palm center's work um our work is based on a very militarized model um, and we, we had to reinforce the militarization of the culture to make our case. Gays and lesbians help the military. That's a militarized message. and And wearing other hats, I worry a lot about the militarization of American society because I think our, not of the military as an organization, but civilians, I would argue, in our society are too militarized and therefore they don't they don't think in critical ways about, you know whether it's smart to go to war in a certain case or a, a foreign policy choices so so um so it's important to own that 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 the advocacy work you're going to do is not going to be 100 percent clean um and then a seventh thing i guess <laughs> uh i'll probably stop after this. Oh, this, um, is great. <laughs> this this also took a lot of privilege so i'm not saying this is i i just feel very grateful that i was able to do what i'm about to say which is um these are marathons they're not sprints and in the context of social justice the repeal of don't ask don't tell and of the trans ban happened very quickly but they were still multi-year fights uh, 17 years total on don't ask don't tell and i mean i was involved on in the, 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 the 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 trans military campaign for all intents and purposes was three intense years although uh, there had been a few people talking about the issue um, and trying to to fight for 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 decades, but the point is, even in the short versions, um, you, you need to you know self care and 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 be a little playful. Um, uh, and you know, part of the reason that I had privilege and was able to do that was because there were not life or death stakes for me. And so you know, it's it's quite a different thing to. Um, ask a black activist to be playful about black lives matter when there are police officers killing executing black civilians so so I get that um, uh, uh, I, I get that you know the, the 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 playfulness that we could bring to our advocacy from time to time was a reflection of a lot of race and class privilege um, and it was helpful when we could do it one, one of my favorite um, <sighs> Uh, this still makes me chuckle. Uh, I don't even know if people say chuckle, but um, <laughs> back in the Bush days, uh, he had a just a shit for brain Secretary of Defense named Donald Rumsfeld. That administration lied. It, I, they're you know the Republicans have been lying for so long. Like Trump is not new. Um, their lies were about Iraq, and they took us to war on the basis of lies. Um, Uh, anyways, so we're making the case about gays in the military and, um, Rumsfeld, some journalists busted Rumsfeld for creating this office in the Pentagon, whose job was to plant fake newspaper stories in Middle Eastern newspapers to, you know, pontificate about the wonderfulness of the American military, um, in Middle Eastern newspapers and the wonderfulness of America. And it was, it was, it was embarrassing for Rumsfeld and he immediately that day, uh, got rid of that office, I'm sure he parked the work in some other place in the Pentagon. But anyways, optically, he got rid of that office. And um, and he released this quote that said, um, um, the Pentagon would never lie. And so, you know, our whole case was predicated on the notion that the Pentagon was lying systematically about gays and lesbians time and time again. And so we compiled a press release of different lies that the Pentagon tells at different times. And um, issued this press release that's still posted on our website, um, and I think it, the headline was something like um, "Pentagon claim not to lie is seen to be untrue." Um, and uh, and 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 Rumsfeld had a had a, a senior, uh, like an executive assistant at the time, or a strategist—I don't know—someone someone very senior in his office who was a gay Republican, who I'd never met, but he called me out of the blue and just like screamed at me and um, for that one and I, I I guess I don't know maybe he was just humiliated because he's gay and here was a gay group that was humiliating his boss or whatever but I I, I really like that one so mm-hmm. so so a little playfulness time to time goes a long way um, actually I will say one more thing no that's enough seven points is enough no please yeah oh, well I don't know if this is I don't know if this is really something It's necessary to worry about at like the beginning of one's career but I will say um, in my work, um, not on the Supreme Court actually, but, and actually not on transgender military, but on gays and lesbians in the military, on Don't Ask, Don't Tell, by far, by far, by far, the worst acid drips, sleepless nights, nightmares, difficult times, fights, was not with the Christian right, or with the military, but it was with other uh, LGBT groups. And, mm. um, actually a trans military too now that i think about that there, now there was always a degree of collaboration and the collaboration was always important but but the but allies did not always behave well um and that was super super painful and
2: was so that I, people saying things like you're like you're not advocate advocating for us the way we want you to or how did that play out uh,
1: no 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 <laughs> no. <laughs> no that's. Um, That's you. Well, you remember that study I told you about um, uh, the Pentagon spending firing gays and lesbian troops is 100 percent higher than they than the GAO claimed. And, you know, we lined up this huge commission to do the study and to sign it, uh, including a former secretary of defense. Cost a lot of money, took a lot of time. Um, If you're breaking a story in the newspaper on the basis of a study, you almost always have to give the reporter an exclusive on that uh, story because that's one of the few things. Like it's 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 kind of an arrow in your quiver that um, you know journalists don't like to be scooped, and so if you give them an, an exclusive, that means they get to report on your your thing first. Um, and 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 studies are so not newsworthy that if the reporter doesn't have an exclusive, they'll just not do the story. Um, and so as a courtesy to our main partner group um, working on gays and lesbians in the military, we gave them the finding from our study um, uh, before we took it. Well, after we'd taken it to the Washington Post, we just told them, hey, there's going to be a Washington Post article about, you know, the main finding in the study, which is the cost of firing gays and lesbians is X amount of dollars. And they proceeded to release that number in public, which, you know, thankfully the Washington Post still went ahead with its story. But, um, just shit like that,
2: yeah, okay, mm-hmm. got it,
0: yeah, thanks for sharing all of that i I think that's what we're really trying to do in general, just with our conversations, um is that like there's there's so much there um, as you reflect back on the work that you've done and the experiences that you've had, and um, you just telling us about that uh, some of like your favorite takeaways and some of your key ad, like pieces of advice, I think is so helpful and uh, just the work you're doing in general is so helpful. So um, yeah, thanks for sharing all of that.
1: You're very welcome. I thought we were going to talk about the Supreme Court more than gays and lesbians in the military. And this ended up being all all LGBT military and no courts. So thank there's you. that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's great. And I, I think that, you know,
2: we, we like to let the conversation flow wherever it goes naturally. And I think it was a great conversation. And um, again, thank you for sharing. I think you know really if, as i like reflect on the, all the work that you've done and i think about it and i know you mentioned that there's other people who have to be assigned credit at certain times because it's just more impactful when it's set, when it's coming from somebody um you know i think you guys have been you know i love the saying a rising tide lifts all ships and i think you guys have been a great tide in that metaphor to lift a bunch of ships in a bunch of different areas so uh, i think the work you're doing is great and i uh, um you know wish you guys all the best as you guys continue to do more stuff
1: thank you mm-hmm. so much
2: yeah
0: yeah and thank you so much for your time today we really appreciated this conversation and we're grateful just to be able to to really share this information and put this message out as Absolutely. well Absolutely.